Welcome to the wonderful world of wine, exploring all things wine with you. We are your hosts, Mark Lenzi and Kim Simone, and every week we bring you trends and topics from the wine world. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hello there, and welcome to the wonderful world of wine. I'm your host, Kim Simone, with my co-host, Mark Lenzi. And every week we look at different articles and topics from around the wine world and discuss them and bring them to your attention. How are you doing this week, Mark? How are you, Kim? I'm well, thank you. Always so, great to talk wine, right? Absolutely. So we like to discuss not only articles that we read in wine publications and in other major publications, but we also like to see what we are are interested in what we've Googled. So Mark, what did you Google about wine this week? This week, Kim, I, I have a sales rep who loves to come in and try to bring a wine or a grape that he thinks I've never had, or he thinks for some reason I want to stock. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know you like different grape varietals. Yeah. So this week, he brought to me Haisa, a Chilean oh, from, red say, grape. from Chile, maybe? And I was surprised when I first heard it. I said, yeah, I think I tried this. I checked my notes, and I did have a sparkling version of it years ago. Oh. But this was a, a light red wine. And at one point, it was one of the most planted grapes in Chile, Mm -hmm. uh, now overtaken by Cab. So, Paisa. And I looked up the pronunciation, so that is it. So, did he or she tell you that this is the grape that they used to call the Mission Grape that was brought up into California and was the first, some of the first grapes to be planted in California? Great. I know. No, I'm I didn't even see that sure in my research. That that this is the same grape variety or related to the grape variety that is sort of what started it all in California. So uh, did it go from Spain to Argentina to Chile or they that's what they think. They yeah. think that it is native to Spain and then was brought over to South America. There is some I think still confusion about that whether it is the same grape variety or if it was crossed with something else over in South America and became its own thing. Sort of like Torontes. Like Torontes is is a sort of a similar situation. It's similar to something that's from Spain, became its own thing in always South America. Always interesting when we look into mm. different grape varieties. What about you, Kim? What did you Google this week? So I've been doing a little bit of research into the history of history of California winemaking, but not that far back. More uh, our modern California wine industry. They're just starting in the 1950s, 1960s, and I was doing some research on the Mondavi family. So uh, Robert Mondavi, his brother Peter Mondavi, and they they kind of went their separate ways in the 1960s and 1970s. And Peter Mondavi continued with the Charles Krug winery. And then Robert Mondavi, of course, established his own winery that his children then took over and then was eventually sold uh, in the 90s or the early 2000s. So I was, uh, yeah, that's what I was doing some research on uh, the uh, old families of Napa Valley. Did they split because they had issues, the brothers? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I there was a lot of, uh, there was lawsuits and fights and their mother wouldn't talk to one of them and yeah it was this whole it's very that the whole family situation reads like a, a shakespearean tragedy or a greek tragedy it's it's fairly fascinating but yeah i thought that was uh that was what i've been looking up So the first trend in the wine industry that we wanted to bring up on this week's show regarded the blockchain 
and V-Chain technology, I am not the tech geek. (laughs) I leave all of that to you, Mark. So I think that you need to explain this a little bit to me and to our listeners about what this whole V-Chain technology is all about. Well, V-Chain is actually a a Singapore-based company that just has technology. They're calling blockchain technology. It's a, a way of digital technology to track things about wines. And most people would be familiar with this when they see a QR code. Are you familiar with QR oh, codes, Oh, yes, Kim? I am. So they look like barcodes. They, they look little squares, dots. right? Yeah, They're like, squares they look like you scan them. UPC codes, but they have a little extra things going on to it. And you basically put your phone up to this code and it reads it. And it's either going to redirect you to a website or it's going to ask you questions. Or in this case, with this blockchain technology, it would be on a wine. You would take the picture and then it would then give you grape information, vineyard information. It could give you temperature information, how to serve information, or it could take you to websites. So that was the first thing I would ask you, Kim, when you're talking about technology, your experience with these QR codes. Have you seen them? Do you use them? I've only really used them in a few cases. It's not something that I often will use. I know I have a special little app on my phone that, you know, I click the app and I open the app and it allows me to take the picture of of that code and then it'll do exactly what you said. No, it brings me to a website or it gives me more information. But I haven't really used it all that often on wine and I'm See, trying to the, think that's now the problem is that people the, don't use I, them. Well, yeah, the, I mean, this is a geeky thing. It's technology that's geeky that I see it either people love this or people know nothing about it. It's not like they don't hate it. They know nothing about yeah. it. So you being in the industry, not really using it is it t- tells me something about mm-hmm. this technology. Yeah, like I don't like to say I was at a wine table and it had one of the codes on one of the bottles, I wouldn't necessarily take out my phone and scan it to learn about that wine right then and there. And I'm much more interested in tasting the wine and getting my own impressions of it and not necessarily looking up information. Maybe that's the issue is that it's that extra step for people. I don't know. What do you think? What do you think is getting in the way of people's use of this technology? This is just one part of technology. QR codes itself. I mean, I've been asked to use it as shelf talkers. I just don't see people taking their phone out to scan this. I see them more taking the picture or looking for a picture. I don't see them using the QR code technology. And you can put so much in it. When you create the code, you can fill in anything you want or send it to any site you mm-hmm. want. So it's a lot of data in that little barcode that's very detailed. It can, it can, like I say, it can take you to different websites. It could say, here's the review on the wine. It can take you to a site to review it on your own. But this is just one type of what I feel is uh, digital technology. QR codes. In the past, I've had um, wines from Burgundy that that the actual cork had technology in it to track so you could see the temperature and it was actually a counterfeiting type ah, thing. Okay. For higher end Burgundy? Higher end wines. You want to make sure, yeah, this is a true Burgundy wine. The cork would tell you when it was shipped, how it was shipped. So it was a temperature tracking type sensor. So this is all just one part of technology that I've seen. Mm-hmm. It seems like from the articles that I've read about using these new technologies and bringing in this type of technology, which which gives more information and more data to the consumer, it seems like it's being geared toward a specific 
age group. Like we hear a lot of talk about how wine producers are trying to get more millennials to drink wine. And this idea of bringing in more technology seems to be the route that a lot of wine makers and wine marketers are using. I wonder how successful they're being in that. If you're saying that you're not seeing that a whole lot of your customers are using this sort of technology, I wonder how successful it's actually being. Yeah, and I think you're right when you're saying it's not only an age group thing, but I think it's geared more towards the high-end collectible wine buyer who wants a guarantee or authenticity Uh of that wine. So not just somebody coming in and shopping and saying, hey, this bottle of wine looks interesting. I want to know more about it. Instead of asking a wine consultant, they'll snap a picture of a QR code and get the data that way. Exactly. I think they have to gear the technology to certain levels. The QR code, I think, is great for uh, POS or marketing material use, but the other technologies as far as temperature sensors and all that is to the next level for the investor, Mm -hmm. the people who wants to know that what they're getting is true. And I mean, you look back, we were talking in a Spanish wine, Kim, look at back in Rioja when they put the uh, bands around the, the bottles, the wrap, mm-hmm. the netting, right? which was really the first form of counterfeiting protection, right? So now it's just getting to the digital level. How else can we protect it? How yep. else can we give you more information? Such an interesting use of technology. You know, you don't necessarily think that that could be a use, especially when we often think about it as far as marketing goes. And this is for a different turn. And counterfeiting, especially especially for those really hard to get, restricted, super fine wine, expensive stuff that maybe a lot of it isn't made every year. Counterfeiting is an issue and being able to certify and have you have this information chain that gives you all of this promise that this is what it's saying, uh, I think is a, is a great way for the wine industry to be using technology. Yeah. And another example, we talked to a company in Idaho, which was an electronics company, which puts chip technology in in a label, puts it on the bottle so you can actually measure different things or check different things on your wine. But Kim, would you think that the temperature sensor technology on a wine bottle is is good information? I would think so, but only for a few people who really pay attention to that stuff. Like we know that the temperature of a wine is important. All right. So when you say temperature technology, do you mean like what the temperature of the wine is right now or its temperature history? The the history of it. Yes. Yeah. I, for certain wines, I would say yes, because wine is one of those things that is very sensitive to changes and fluctuations in temperature. So you don't want that bottle of Bordeaux that you paid $400 for to have gone through too hot, too cold, too hot, too cold, too hot, too cold, because that's going to damage the wine. So I would think for investors or for people who are really collectors and super into, I'm buying this wine now because I want to drink it in 20 years and it's going to be fantastic. Yes, for those people, that kind of information matters. Not for your $15 bottle of whatever Paso Robles Cabernet that you're going to drink with a steak tomorrow night. And like, I think it's like you said, it has its place and it's more in that fine wine category. Yeah, they're not going to spend the money to add technology to a bottle where it's inexpensive. wine. But if I'm spending $100 or more on a bottle, Mm -hmm. I'd I'd really like to know if people took care of it. Right. And it's not just, you know, the shipping from, say, Bordeaux to New York. It's also what's happening to that wine once it gets into a warehouse and how is it being stored and is it being stored in some place that is cool enough to store fine wine or is it being put in a situation where maybe it is too warm and then those wines aren't going to taste as good as they're supposed to taste. So interesting stuff. Thank you.
You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. And if you'd like to follow our show, please find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Our next article is from Forbes.com, Four Things Wine Pros Know That You Can Too. And what I like to about this, Kim, was they gave four examples of things to know, and then they gave things of like a to-do list of, okay, this is what you should know, that pros know, and this is what you can do to explore those things. It's like they gave you homework. There's wine homework involved in this one. I, I agree. I think that this was a nice way to approach it. And this is actually from one of my favorite writers, Jill Barth. I think she writes really wonderful articles, even if the photos in this article I thought were absolutely hysterical <laughs> because uh. they were just these stock photos. And there's this one of this guy playing a ukulele at a wine tasting. I'm like, oh my goodness. But the content of this article I thought was uh, was really good, especially for a beginner wine drinker. And sometimes we run across people who come to our classes who are like, I know that I like to drink wine, but I have no idea where to start. And I thought that the, this gave some really nice tips for a beginner wine drinker who really just needs some starter points and, and what you need to know. And we're going to go through a couple of these. Yeah, and it's all things we've covered with our listeners in the past so it's it keeps coming up so that means it's trending and it's popular so let's talk about the first thing that they said wine pros know that you can is great varietal means less than you think right and it, th- that's a little, I think, almost a clickbaity kind of yeah. a kind of a lead-in. But what they were trying to emphasize here is that yes, the grape variety is important as far as the ultimate flavor of the wine. And then they said yes, the location that that wine is made or those grapes are grown is also important. But where you get the real characteristic of the wine is by putting those two things together. So it's not just about the grape variety because you can grow Cabernet anywhere, and in a lot of instances, there will be a similarity of flavor here and here and here and here and here, no matter where you're growing that Cabernet. But you get the real individuality of that wine when you pair the place with the grape. And I thought that this was a really nice way of thinking about it. Yeah. And let's just remind our listeners, when we talk about variety or varietal, we're talking about the actual grape, a Chardonnay grape, a Pinot Noir grape, a Cabernet grape. And we've talked in the past, Kim, knowing a place puts a, I don't want to say a marker or an identity to a grape, but I feel people should really, if you're a Cabernet drinker, explore Cabernet from other parts of the world. There are certain grapes that are international grapes that can be grown many places, but they are very different styles. Mm -hmm. So I like that they're saying, well, actually, I'm not liking that they're saying it doesn't, it doesn't matter because it does matter because it matters where it's from. It's, it can taste different. Right. And I, and I think that that's the, what they're really trying to say is that both of these factors are important. It's not just the great variety. It's not just where it's made, but you got to put them together and then you get that sense of place, but then that also sense of, hey, this is the style of wine that this great variety can produce. Um, and I like people to think about this when it comes to something like Sauvignon Blanc as well. Again, Sauvignon Blanc, another great variety. A New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc has a very different character than a California Sauvignon Blanc. You can taste them side by side. And if you drink enough wine, you can be able to figure out, hey, these are the same grape varieties, but they are going to taste different because New Zealand has its own character. And California, especially, you know, Sonoma, Napa, they have their own character and the same with France. So if you were to line up four Sauvignon Blancs from very different places, yes, they all have sort of a family 
resemblance to to each other. But there are definite unique flavors and aromas depending on where it's grown. And you can absolutely do that same thing with Cabernet, absolutely do the same thing with Pinot Noir, Chardonnay as well. So look at if you find a grape variety that you really like, explore all those other places that it grows. Don't just be stuck at one place. And you'll learn a lot and you'll learn a little bit more about what you like about that grape variety. So let's talk about the next thing that they say pros know that you can too. It's how to read a wine label. Right. And this is a big thing that we emphasize in our classes with you when we talk in this show that reading a, reading a label is very important and the, a wine label will tell you a lot of information or it will try to trick you in many places, especially with those American wine labels. Right, Mark? Yeah. We always talk about this, the truths and the lies. If you know what is truth and what is a lie, you can be a very good wine buyer, wine shopper. It'll help you out get your money's worth. And that's the thing we always push to people when we talk about the labels. They were saying, buy a bottle of wine. If you see a term or something on the label, buy it and then research it. And as you're drinking it, learn what that means. Yeah. This this is, I think, a little bit of a, of a scary method for a lot of people, frankly. Like, there, you really have to take a leap of faith to buy a bottle of wine that has all this information on it that you have absolutely no idea what it's telling you and buy it and drink it and then do the research. Like, I think that that, it take, that takes a little bit of chutzpah <laughs> to do yeah. that, especially if you're plunking down like 20 bucks. That's where, where I see how this do you know happen, you're going to like it? Yeah, you know? where, where I see it happening, you talked about Samuel Blanc, is a lot of times you'll see French, you'll see Sincere, or you'll see a region that you don't know it grows Sauvignon Blanc, but it might be in the Sauvignon Blanc section. So you think, well, maybe it is. So let me get that and ah. let me research it. That's the way I would kind of think. I, I wouldn't think you'd buy it if something says, you know, this is super wine and then you, you taste, you're buying it to say, <laughs> I want to see if it's really super wine, hmm. right? One of the one of the non-truths on yeah. the whole label. Well, that but. is one of the nice ways that you organize your store. You put wines that might not necessarily label them by the grape variety, but you know that that is the what the grape variety is in that label. So you put them in that section. So you put your Sancerre's in your Sauvignon Blanc section. You put your Chablis in your Chardonnay section. So that if our listeners, when our listeners find wine stores or restaurants that list their wines in that way, you can kind of take a chance with that. And chances are, if you like that grape variety, hopefully you'll like that bottle as well. And it'll give you a new experience with that grape. I find myself, Kim, if I see a wine and it really has no, nothing on it, you know, not a lot of information, those are the ones I get just because I want to find out what the heck is going on yeah. with this. Why are they not saying other things? So you, you do know? do this. You try, I, I the, do. You try this out? Oh, I that's do that fun. a lot. Or if I see a bottle, I'll take definitely a picture of where it's produced or bottled or the importer and, mm-hmm. then, and then research that. Um, like you always talk about importers, follow an importer. If you like a wine, they probably import something else yep. that you like because they have your maybe your style that you mm-hmm. like. And I do this with new bottles that you bring in. I, I might see something on the shelf that might be a region that I'm curious about. It might not tell me anything about what's in the blend or what that grape variety is, but I'll buy it and have fun with it. I did that last night with a new rosé that you just brought in from, uh, from Savoie. In France. So that was pretty cool. And uh, I still don't know much about it, but I know that we liked to drink it. So that is a just tasting and and learning is a great way to uh, improve your palate and to improve your your wine experience.
You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find more information about Mark at his website, franklinliquors.com, and more information about myself at vinitaswineworks.com. We've been discussing an article that was in Forbes magazine about four things that wine professionals know that you can too. And this was great because it really broke down some topics that we talk about fairly frequently into four pretty easy, easy to digest bits of advice and information. And we've already spoken about varietals, location, how to read a wine label. And the third one is the benefits of decanting. And we do talk about decanting a lot. And I I think it's funny how much you enjoy decanting wine, Mark. You decant yeah. your, all of your wines. Well, I have them, so I figured I use them. <laughs> but in this article, they're actually saying, don't overcomplicate it. Don't run out and buy a decanter. You can use any vessel you have in your, your house to pour it into. But it's all about aeration and swirling. And we love, Kim, to talk about moving the wine before mm-hmm. you, you drink it. We And in classes, we always discuss this. We love smelling and swirling, and a lot of people just love tasting. And I right? probably over-swirl. And I talk about this in class all the time because I just swirl my wine in my glass out of habit. So I'll be up in front of a group of students, and I'll be you know talking, and we'll have wine in our glasses, and I will continually be swirling. And every once in a while, somebody will raise their hand and be like, are we supposed to swirl it? that much and i'm like no 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 no. i'm just an overexcited swirler <laughs> i yeah. just do it out of force of habit and we always joke him and i that we swirl our milk we swirl our <laughs> soda i swirl my coffee it's a very bad habit <laughs> it mixes the sugar up really well in your coffee if you continually swirl it though so they did a to do for this to learn about decanting it was pour your wine in some sort of pitcher or a decanter if you have it 20 minutes before you you drink it but they didn't say to move it after so mm-hmm. i mean i agree experiment either young wine or old wine decanting it but don't forget once you let it sit to to move it again right. before you drink it and really decanting a wine does open it up um, i had an older bottle i'm sorry a younger bottle of spanish wine that i opened for a tasting last week and it really was very closed and tight and didn't have much of an aroma when i opened it up and i'm like oh boy i really need to decant this wine so i ultimately had it open and decanted for about an hour and a half to two hours before i poured it for the class and it really made Made such a big difference and I was so happy that I did it and that really is I think a great way to show people the benefits of having your wine open a little bit ahead of time giving it like you said this 20 minutes maybe even a little bit longer and showing just how much more expressive a wine can be in its aromas if you open it up and and let it get a little bit of air. There's also the flip side of the decanting coin where instead of using it for a younger wine that you want to open up and have it smell a little bit better is how to use it for an older bottle that maybe has thrown some sediment. And we tell people that when you have a wine that has a little bit of age on it, sometimes there's some stuff at the bottom of the bottle. And what that is is like the it's the tannins and it's the color compounds that have just gotten too heavy and they've all clumped together and then they settle to the bottom of the bottle it's usually an indication that you have a better wine on your hands and not necessarily a faulty wine on your hands but that's not stuff that you really want to drink so decanting can be a way of pouring that wine off of the stuff that's at the bottom of the bottle leaving you with a cleaner clearer wine that then you don't have to worry about shaking it up too much and then pouring out the stuff so this is something that we also run into 
to and, and, and a fairly frequent question that I get. I remember learning about decanting, Kim, and it was explained to me that think of it as a diaper. You need, oh. you need it when you're young and you need it when you're old, right? So I thought that was that always stuck in my, my head. About the You'd never told me that one before. Yeah, the diaper, the diaper. Oh, I'm what about, never going to not be able to think about that so now. You, Thank you. You don't have a decanter. You're doing an event or you're at someone's house. What would you recommend for our listeners to do? You you have a bottle, you open it and say, oh, geez, I should really aerate this. I should really decant it. But I don't have the official decanter. Mm-hmm. And by the way, you can find decanters at the Christmas tree shop for like four bucks. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have one, it's very very easy and inexpensive to get but you don't have one what do you recommend what i've done on occasion when i haven't had it i've taken two of the largest wine glasses that i have and i'll pour the wine into one of the wine glasses and then pour it back and forth between the two wine glasses and let it get some air that way and then i'll pour it back into the bottle and we'll use it that way that i think is if you're bare minimum of what you've got Um, a water pitcher also works really well i mean that that pretty much is a decanter i'm trying to think think what no, other great. stuff that's exactly I've used. what i would do pouring yeah. glasses and glasses I, them back i forth. think it's always funny when you hear someone say and if you ever hear it you, you get amazed by it but they'll say i triple decanted this but it's in the bottle right so they like you said earlier with the stuff with an older wine the sediment they decant it they get all the stuff out they might clean out the bottle a little bit then they put it back in the bottle mm-hmm. right so it's like hyper decanting <laughs> but cleaning it up and at times it can hurt it because you can over decant yes. a wine but it's always amazing people that take that much care and presenting that they wanted to cant so many times and clean it. Yeah. So be careful with your older wines. You don't want to over aerate them, uh, but usually younger wines, and especially if you're going to be drinking those within the next couple of hours, you can you can feel free to give them some good amounts of air and oxygen. And finally, the last thing that they say that wine pros know that you can too uh, is about food and wine pairings. Again, a topic that we discuss fairly often on here. And really, it's that food and wine pairings are about experimentation. It's not that there are perfect pairings, perfect wines that go with perfect foods. And it's also not just drink what you like with what you like to eat. There is a little method to the madness, but it really is about experimentation and finding what is a a good pairing to your palate. There are going to be certain styles of wine that you like and certain styles of wine that you don't like, and then certain types of food that you like and certain types of food that you don't like. So it really is, I think the fun of it is that it's always a work in progress and it's always going to be different and it's always going to change. Yeah, and it should be fun. And I love that they said experiment with this. And I see this being in retail where we've had traditional turkey on Thanksgiving. People, you say Pinot Noir is the, is the grape to have. And people come in and they just buy cab because they like cab. <laughs> they like cab. Right? <laughs> so, I mean, to me, that's experimenting. But if they do drink cab and I notice there, I say, well, you might want to go on the lighter side of a cab or something like that. But people are experimenting. And you and I often have opposite views of pairing, but that's what makes it interesting because we find out that we might not, at the time we say it, we might not agree, but then we try it and we say, yeah. So we're experimenting together with food and wine pairings all the time. And we've done extreme pairings ourselves with (laughs) cookies and a lot of different things. So experimenting definitely is the key. And keep it fun. You know, this is not something that needs to be freaked out about or stressed out about. You know, this, these are food and wine are some of the pleasures in life and you put them together and, and it should be enjoyable.
Thank you for listening to the wonderful world of wine. We've been your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. Please follow us on our iTunes page or our SoundCloud page to get older episodes and send us any questions you might have on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Cheers. Cheers.